Hey guys, if you want updates on our latest episodes, then be sure to subscribe to the Film Colossus podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, if you'd like to support the show and hear episodes ad-free, then subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash filmcolossus. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Chris Lambert. And my name is Travis Bean. And on today's episode, we break down one of those movies that continues to confuse people to this day, American Psycho. We show how the movie's core concepts and satiric approach can help make sense of and contextualize what, on the surface, appears to be an indecipherable movie. Travis, have you ever listened to Duran Duran? What a silly question. It's like you don't even know me, Chris. I know. Ordinary world, please. So I don't have to tell you much about their new wave synth pop post-disco sound that really captured the 80s and helped them expand outside of their humble beginnings in Birmingham, England. Mm. I have to say, people say Seven and the Ragged Tiger is a derivative work, but Notorious, Notorious is the one that really stood head and shoulders above the rest. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, I, I would like to counter with by talking about personally my favorite band and to me one of the most underrated bands of the 90s. They really, people didn't understand their artistry at the time, which was the Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> I, the Bare Naked Ladies were around in the 80s? The 90s. Oh, okay, I'm jumping okay, to the okay. 90s. Oh, okay. Oh, beautiful. Then tell me, tell me more. Duran Duran's the only band I've ever really listened to from the 80s. Is that true? Yeah, just I, I like their sound and everything else. I was like, could anything be better than this? So I just like didn't even bother. Is uh, Tears for Fears? Well, okay. I mean, I have heard Tears for Fears because of Donnie Darko. Sure. Um, but I've never sought it out on my own. Okay, okay, okay. So wait, tell me more about Bare Naked Ladies. Um, well, one week uh, since I looked at them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the lyrics of that song well enough to pull this bit off. I... When you first said Bare Naked Ladies, honestly, was about to bring up Tub Thumping. I was like, oh, no, that's Chumbawamba. That's Chumbawamba. <laughs> don't you dare conflate those ridiculous 90s bands. They don't even have a genre. They're just chaos. <laughs> so today we're talking American Psycho. Yeah, that was a fitting intro for this movie. Yeah, what a movie. Yeah. I mean... I'm hoping that's how you feel. This is your first time watching American Psycho. It is my very first. I mean, I, I've i definitely seen a clip of the scene where Bateman goes loco on, uh, is it Dave Allen? What's his name? Paul Allen. Paul Allen. Uh, how can I forget such a generic name? <laughs> um, I've seen that clip. And so basically the only things I knew about this movie going in were all of it could not be real. I knew that going in and I knew uh, that Huey Lewis and the news were somehow part of the movie. Cause I am personally a Huey, Huey Lewis and the news fan. And I was interested to see how it was incorporated into this movie. <laughs> were you, were you disappointed or overjoyed? Well, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I appreciate an analytical discussion of Huey Lewis and the news, but I, I have to say, I, I think he undersells sports. I think sports is a dynamite up. I've been much better than four. Uh, I've always wondered. <laughs> I always sports, wondered. Sports is one of those albums that like literally every song was a giant hit. Like it was crazy that he had an album with so many hits. I, think I maybe mean, eight or nine of the song of the 10 songs were like top 10 hits. Huey, Huey knew what to do. Yeah. He, uh, he foresaw the news and the headline was Huey Lewis in the news breaks big. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was one that I heard a lot about, but somehow missed in college. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody would talk about Fight Club 
given that I was in college 2005 to 2009. But I remember people mentioning American Psycho, but I never was all that interested and I don't know why. And then as we started doing uh, film Colossus and explaining movies, it was one that was always making the kinds of lists that we were looking at for inspiration, but that oh, right. I somehow also kept skipping over. And then I believe it was 2017. I, my wife and I had moved in together and I guess 2018, it was coming up on my birthday and I always would watch a movie on my birthday. It, like just one, like an old school movie that I loved, like Lion King or uh, Groundhog Day, just something mm. kind of like positive and uplifting. And the one year on my birthday where I was like, hey, we're going to watch American Psycho because I know, <laughs> like, I know <laughs> that you're going to really like it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, fine. I uh, will watch it. You know, I should watch it. I need to watch it. And I was so entertained and amused and befuddled and in love with this movie, which is always a strange thing to say because it's still a weirdly controversial movie for the same reasons that Fight Club is controversial mm-hmm. because people it's popular in for the wrong reasons with the wrong group. Yeah. So the same way that a lot of toxic guys miss the point of Fight Club and only view it in a way that reinforces their worldview, which is frustrating, which leads then to a lot of uh, backlash brought onto Fight Club and the kind of people that really like Fight Club. I think American Psycho had a similar impact to where there are people that didn't get that it was about them or mocking them, disparaging them, or telling them that they're like crazy. And they just love the movie and bro out over the movie. And that's caused some backlash to the movie itself. That's what great satire does. Like it it kind of disguises what it's calling stupid. Right, right. Because it has to, in order to really embody it, because if it was just like, this stuff is stupid. Yeah. That's not a that's not art that's not a story that's not if you are going to deconstruct it you have to portray it and if you're portraying it in a way that's accurate or well or getting into some of the aspects of it that make it so pervasive or alluring to the kind of people that really take on that persona it's going to resonate with them but the rejection is going to be in there so it's often a lose-lose scenario for some of these movies. Yeah, right. In terms of how the public will relate to them. But I was legitimately, on first watch, blown away by just how impressive the filmmaking was, the acting was. Like, it made sense why Christian Bale... Like, this was one of his, like, first big breakout roles. Like, he had been in Empire of the Sun and everything, but... As a kid, right? As a kid, yeah. I mean, at this point in his career, he didn't really have enough accolades to where Mary Heron really wanted him for the role. Uh And (laughs) the studio said no, and they cast Leonardo DiCaprio. Of course. And it was going to be the first movie that Leonardo DiCaprio did coming off of Titanic. And a bunch of people sat down with Leo, including I think a a major film critic at the time and told him he can't do this movie. That's being so cruel to women when he's now like a heartthrob. Right. It was just going to send like entirely the wrong message and flash forward to Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. (laughs) You know, he had some space, (laughs) but coming right off of Titanic. So he ended up dropping out and the studio, you know, went on a casting hunt for everybody else. And Christian Bale, the entire time, stayed training for the movie. He stayed in (laughs) shape. He stayed in shape. He kept studying. He was just convinced he was going to get the role. And Mary Herring kept rejecting everyone. And then finally the studio was just like, fine, you don't fuck it. Like do Christian Bale. (laughs) Sure. Cast this beautiful man in our movie. Yeah. If that's who you want, fine. Take him. And uh, she got Christian Bale and he came in and just absolutely (laughs) 
yeah, crush this I, role. Man, I mean, obviously, I look at him and I see that he's Christian Bale, but he's so young and I'm so used to what he looks like now that I'm like, that's Christian Bale. Like it was just bizarre to see him that young. I know. I know. Uh, but I haven't watched any of Mary Heron's other films, which I really should because I love what she did in American psycho so much. I don't know if the other ones are close to that in any way. If it's just, you know, the forces came together for this one, but I really, should give uh, the rest of her filmography another shot. But this is a movie that after we watched it on that birthday, we started watching it every birthday after. So this cool. has become a, a birthday movie for me. And what year did that start again? Uh, 2018. 2018, okay. And then That is crazy I, it took you that long to see this movie. It's, it's I know. such a crisp movie. I know. Uh, and then what, 2000, was it 2023 that I wrote the analysis for it? Um, oh wow it took you that long to do that or 2022 yeah it it took a long time to finally get around to uh writing about it as well Mm. i mean i've never written about (laughs) i just wrote about showgirls which is one of my favorite movies but i've never written about like magnolia or enter the void like i don't know there's i feel like there's some weird trepidation with writing about a movie that's so close to you yeah you don't know if you're gonna just go down a a rabbit hole i know i love magnolia yeah, how much about this am I going to write? I did um, with Mahal Drive. Yeah, American Psycho, I think, is one of the, like, the second longest or third longest analysis that I've written for the mm-hmm. site. Uh, if you take Tenet out with Tenet just being like an insane <laughs> man's work. It's a um, dissertation. Yeah, 17,000 words. But the American Psycho I th- one, I think, came out to, I don't think it was 10,000. That can't be right, right? It's probably around 10. <sighs> That's a lot of words. Yeah. But uh, um, but it was November of uh, wow. 2022. So, uh, I mean, I watched the movie like a lot for that. Like I had to scrub through the movie a lot for that. Yeah, it's 10,076 words. Just broke over the 10,000 mark. Yeah. So, I mean, it got a lot of it got a lot of thought put in, but that was one that during that process, you know, watching it, going back to individual scenes, piecing it together, like I've come to know this movie quite intimately. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I like what we were saying earlier about satire. I think that's that's kind of the key to the movie's success is figuring out what good satire is. Because you're right, some satire can just be mocking for mocking's sake. And that can work in, in a purely comedic sense. Like, I mean, I'm not calling the scary movie movies like grand masterworks or something. But like when something with that formula works well, it's great. Like it, it's satirizing its subject really well. But I think something like American Psycho goes deeper because like, like we were saying, when you satirize something, good satire is when they satirize something and the subject, which they're satirizing, like it can go unnoticed almost like you just kind of become part of the character that they're satirizing, the, the archetype they're satirizing, whatever part of culture they're satirizing. Um, and you kind of get lost in that and just follow the character. But I feel like that's kind of the key here using American Psycho as an example, because it's satirizing like Wall Street bros, you know, like toxic masculinity, uh, misogyny, um, this whole movement of men that came out of the eighties where every, you know, greed is good. And, um, every, there was such materialistic focus. Like it was so prevalent and so annoying to so many people. Um, yet like the kind of lifestyle that a lot of people secretly wanted, like maybe they didn't want to be a wall street bro, but like they were envious of the aura around these people and like that they had found happiness in some way, shape or form, even if what they found happiness through was deplorable um but what's cool about a movie like this is that like it is satirizing that culture in the sense that it is calling it stupid but because we're getting to know this person so well we're starting to understand like why he is this way it isn't just like this guy's dumb and everyone everything about him and his culture is dumb it's that like culture made him this way like he wouldn't have been this way if it wasn't for society and the way it functions 
and um, like things drove him to be materialistic and look at women as objects and be lonely. It, it's not fair to just like criminalize him. Like, let's talk about like why Patrick Bateman is like this. Like, what is in his DNA that made him this way? And like, and when you look at somebody that way, you stop just uh, um, villainizing people, but you can start looking at the macro and yeah. thinking about like what about society pushes like it, it, would you look at a this is what's great about art and stories and and thinking about satire purely in a narrative sense is like when you look at a character like this you're able to kind of like trace it back to the elements of society that started all this and stories like this can be cathartic in that way because you can think about like the way what we can change like slowly and incrementally change to like push people away from this kind of behavior you know one thousand percent which i mean it's the fact that it's still relevant in some ways like going back and watching it you can see some of the distance we've gained from some of this but also some of the ways in which <laughs> uh the not the same personality types but similar personality types have emerged right. and you're able to still have that same process of diagnosis of what has caused Patrick Bateman to be like this and then apply that to now. What's causing people today to be the Patrick Batemans of today? And can we start to find what that is for each decade? <laughs> because right. it does feel like there's a personality like this that emerges in each decade. Yeah. Um, y you could argue that this personality still exists. Yeah just in new forms. In different forms yeah yeah um well so had you watched any mary heron movies before was this um, your first one no i mean i know about i shot andy warhol i know about the notorious betty page like i know of her in like a feminist sense i guess she, she seems to really wear that badge on her sleeve and <laughs> uh, it, it's funny thinking of her directing a Brady stanellis book <laughs> like those two energies coming together i'm just almost like what kind of, what art is this gonna create <laughs> um but yeah no i i don't know much about her but i i dig the style like it feels like the second it started i was like oh this is so 90s this is so like early 2000s like it does feel like fight club in a sense um but it also really has its own aesthetic its own image uh, I, the, the opening sequence alone, yeah. like it feels f both familiar and like, oh, this is like refreshing. She's doing something cool with this. Yeah, that's like the confidence that this movie exudes, like the filmmaking in this movie exudes from just like the style, the the presentation, the editing. There's a pacing to it and uh, a perspective on each of the shots and the flow of the scenes that just feels so masterful from the very beginning. I, I don't know. Like the opening credits suck me right into everything that's going on. And that was one of the big breakthroughs when I wrote about the movie was realizing that the opening credits establish right up front, this toying with perspective and perception, because you initially think that, the red on the screen is blood, right? Yeah. Uh, but then it just ends up being the the sauce on some of these dishes. <laughs> and so this thing that initially had sinister implications ends up being <laughs> a, a lot more everyday or normal or vapid. Uh, not even vapid, but just a little bit harmless. Mm-hmm and toothless, you might even say. And that's the same thing with Patrick Bateman. It's just his perception of what he is and who he is and what he's doing is far different than the reality of it. Yeah, Because right. in the reality of it, he never killed anybody. He didn't do any of this stuff. Yeah. He's just like a a silly guy drawing. I mean, a terrifying guy drawing things in his, in his notebook. But he's not actually, in that way, the danger that he seemed. So this like perceptional change being introduced right in the opening title sequence 
yeah and carrying us through to the end is just one of those little things that i appreciate so much that the movie knows exactly what it's doing what it's saying and for like puts that in the foreground and like primes us for the rest of the movie with that perspective yeah it's um it's a great movie it reminded me of Mulholland Drive a little bit and that Mulholland Drive one of the great things about it and why it works so well as like a mystery as a as like a neo-noir is that like you know that it's a mystery you know we're solving a mystery but you don't really understand what the mystery is (laughs) until the end yeah which is cool like it kind of puts a twist on like what's worth investigating and like what we're following and what we're deciphering American Psycho is like that like you're slowly kind of piecing together like what it is and what it's ultimately saying and by the end I I think it's fair to argue that like you actually have no idea what happened like you have no idea if he killed all these people like or I mean I assume he didn't but like you don't know for sure either way which way it's going um like because you know this guy says like oh paul allen's alive but like what if patrick bateman thought some other guy was paul allen because apparently all these wall street bros look alike and everyone just like mixes up their names you know it there's like there's just so much um ambiguity in the end that you kind of realize that like oh the mystery is not really the point the point is that like this guy has no concept of what's real and what isn't uh the what he's become what society has turned him into has made him someone almost like selfless. It's a it's a trend I've noticed a lot lately because I've been writing more and more about movies and I just wrote about it in The Godfather that a lot of movies are about, have this narrative through line of self-actualization and realizing who you are. And The Godfather's cool because um, it's all about Michael Corleone and him turning in, he goes from somebody who doesn't want to be part of the family business. He doesn't want to be part of his father's mob business to somebody who completely compromises all of his morals and everything he held true to himself to be head of this family because he's so hungry for power and to attain this position that his dad had and ultimately that ends up saying a bunch about culture and um immigrants who came to america and um like what they're building and what they had to compromise along the way to uh, attain the status that the American dream promised. Like it ends up saying so much. Um, American Psycho is awesome because it you're kind of left in the end, like not really knowing <laughs> what's going to happen with this guy and um, where he ends and what the next step is. Like he ends in just pure confusion and delusion and n- no sense of self-actualization. Like he is a, a lost um faceless person in a way who's just been trying to be a certain kind of person this whole time and in the end he realizes like he's not even who he thought he was <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's a really clever um ambiguous way of looking at uh what you know the chasing this american ideal can do to you hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very well said. And I mean, talking about the Godfather 2, it makes me think it's been a while since I've seen it. But mm. is there something too to the idea that Michael, uh, he was poised for a different path in life, but because of the events in his family and the death of his brothers right. and his father, it's like the circumstances outside of even his own uh desires pulled him into that role to make him feel like he had to go down that path 
Yeah, and, and that makes it an interesting comparison to American Psycho. Like there is a familial element, like an obligation on Michael's part, whereas like Patrick Bateman, he has nobody in his life. Like that's part of his problem is that he has no love in his life. Yeah, even the person he's supposed to be <laughs> in love with. I love the the Christmas party. She's like, you're late. He's like, I've been here. You just didn't see me. <laughs> it's, it's a funny movie, too. It's, it's great. Every scene makes me laugh. Like, every single scene is just so funny to me. <laughs> Christian Bale's sneer, his delivery, it's yeah. just the height of comedy to me especially when they do the card exchange which is a legendary scene but when they're all looking at each other's business card and he sees paul allen's card and he's looking at it and he finally just drops it with this like exhausted weak hand gesture of just he can't even take it anymore the card just falls out of his hand it's so so funny man the other guy um Lewis, is that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy's great. Yeah, Matt Ross, he his, crushes that role. It, it, and his card scene is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I, well, you talk about the end too. Uh, one of the things that I really love about the movie is that it doesn't just show Patrick at the end have this kind of crazy moment. You have Justin Thoreau's character, uh, what's his name? Uh, Timothy Bryce. Mm -hmm. You have Bryce disappear for a little bit. And in the book, I believe it's a bit more pronounced that he's going to rehab or something. Um, I think he falls off a balcony in a club. There's something more that happens to him. (laughs) And uh, so he goes away for a little bit. And then when he comes back in that final scene, you can tell that there's a maturity factor to him that is now different from who he had been and where he was at with the group. He starts caring about politics a bit more. He has actual thoughtful things to say hmm. about the the election that's going on. Or it's not even the election. Um, it's a war announcement. But yeah, Ronald Reagan, that's what it is. Well, the Iran-Contra. Um, yeah, Iran-Contra. Thank you. <laughs> um, Which was hilarious, had- by the way, like, just to jump in, like, I didn't know. I mean, I know about the Iran-Contra and I know it was complete bullshit. And Reagan pretends to like he didn't understand fully what they were doing. And of course, all the investigations afterwards revealed that he totally did. But to see him on air, like saying such, such bullshit, like just bold face lying to everybody. Like, I couldn't believe it. I'd never yeah. seen that before. It's insane, isn't it? Which... Yeah. <sighs> plays into the larger thematics of what you're talking about like the way that society has made these individuals where if you have the leader of the nation lying like this delusional like this what is that going to allow for everybody else to do and the room that they have to deceive to make things up to just be kind of psychotic and there is a little bit of hope in the fact that Bryce grows up at the end and mm. is this counterpoint, especially you think back to the the early dinner that they have with yeah. the group Shalaka. and the cousins. Yeah. And Bateman goes off on that huge, empty rant about. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> right. It's so long, too, which is just even better uh where he's talking about first we need world peace we need to end like conflicts here and there we need get back to, to end, traditional like, his, his final sentence like get back to traditional moral values yeah and he he says it with such uh conviction but also yeah. such uh rehearsed rehearsedness yeah. just like the huey lewis in the news recount yeah and so you compare that and that political statement at the beginning that's so uneducated or is just a repetition versus Bryce at the end when he's actually critical of Reagan and the political discussion that he's trying to have. And then he asks Bateman for Bateman's inputs and Bateman has nothing to say because he really doesn't have anything to say. He's empty. So there's just something really cool about the end and the way in which it 
adds to the dimensionality of the movie and blows the movie up from just the local level of Bateman being this kind of person to what's it mean to connect Bateman to Reagan? And what's it mean if one of these bros Mm. does mature and have a perspective and become a person? I like that there's that dimensionality to it yeah, and that kind of reversal to like, there are Batemans, but they're also Bryce's. Yeah. It's kind of a whiplash moment. Like you're so sucked in by, in that moment, you're so sucked in by Patrick Bateman. And like, is it real or is it not real? You're kind of like invested in that, that the ending is suddenly like just normality comes back. And this dude's just like, what are you talking about? Like, I just talked to Pylon. He's fine. Like, you're you're acting a little crazy, Patrick. And Patrick sits down and maybe is realizing, like, he didn't do any of the things he thought he did. And you're just left with this image of Ronald Reagan lying to everybody and getting this framework of, like, what the country's actually like and what we're dealing with on a bigger scale. Like, this stuff that's way more important. So you have this individual story pitted against, like, this very big thing. It's just such a, I don't even know how to like compliment it properly, but it's just cool to have that suddenly there when you're so invested in the micro the whole time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You feel that it like, it creates that sense of expansion and that sense of the movie still opening up, even though we're at the end rather than closing down. I think that's a complaint that I have about a lot of movies, especially uh, not to always dunk on Nolan, but I think the th- <laughs> when I look at Interstellar and I compare it to 2001, the thing that frustrates me is that I feel like as Interstellar goes on, it becomes a smaller and smaller movie. And then by the time we get to the end, you kind of patly tie everything together and we don't get left with a lot in the way of like, what does this all imply? What is possible? Mm-hmm. Like you get him going off to be with brands, but do we really have any real concept of what that is going to entail in terms of like new society structure? It just, it feels like the movie instead of introducing new elements, just sh- continually shrinks down in size. Right. Where 2001, I feel like continuously gets wider and wider and deeper and more developed and American psycho does that for me as well. And that as we progress throughout the movie, I feel like it continues to grow and continues to add elements and perspectives and commentary that keeps me feeling like there's momentum heading forward, even beyond the movie, Mm -hmm. which I think ends up being a big factor between the movies that I like and the movies that I am more lukewarm on. I feel like a lot of the lukewarm, the ones I'm lukewarm on just generally kind of wrap up a little more patly Uh where the ones that I love continue to have some of these implications. Um, But American Psycho is just, did you notice uh, at the very beginning they mentioned Paul Allen uh, at dinner and they show a guy and it's not, (laughs) It's not what's his face at all. Yeah, I wondered about that. I was like, yeah, I, I wondered about that because I didn't remember that specific scene and if they actually showed him. But that doesn't surprise me that they just completely mix up all these Wall Street guys' names. Yeah, yeah. not. It's. I went back and checked very carefully and it's not Jared Leto. It's, <laughs> yes. it's somebody completely different. So like, throw that into the mix. Like, what is this movie? Like, what do I believe and not believe, you know? Yeah, it's it's cool, though. Like, I think there's a fair case to be made that like, I think if I actually looked at all the evidence, I would say, yeah, Patrick Bigman didn't kill anybody. It's all in his head. It's all just um, a cinematic visualization of like thoughts he's had and all of his insecurities and anxieties and all that. Um, But at the same time, like I, I think about this, I compare this to Blade Runner and the whole discussion of like is Deckard a replicant? Um, the real answer is it doesn't matter if he is or isn't. Like answering that question only answers that question. It doesn't lend insight into the deeper meaning of the movie necessarily. Um, the fact that there is the question 
is kind of the insight that we're kind of left with a bit of ambiguity and not really understanding the reality of the situation. Um, and I, I think that's a great part at the end that we don't know if Patrick Bacon killed anybody because like Patrick doesn't even know if he killed anybody. <laughs> like it's it's extreme insight into his character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, that final shot of the exit sign behind him. But <laughs> I don't even know remember that. that. Uh, yeah, it's or this is not an exit. Is right there behind him. And oh, just kind of <laughs> left being like, yeah, yeah. Oh. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very. I mean, I watch a lot of movies, and I watch a lot of smart movies but this is the kind of movie i would call intelligent <laughs> like it, it feels like it's always trying to make a point and it's always making that point really really well <laughs> and it's yeah, like right. shoving it in your face at how well it's making it yeah i okay so uh, some of the analytical stuff aside i'm just very curious about your how much like what your reaction was just as like to the individual scenes were you skeptical at points throughout the movie was there a point that you eventually found yourself liking the movie were you into it from the very beginning were you laughing throughout do you mm -hmm. love it now like tell me tell me more about all um, that i i will say that i came into this movie with a little bit of like not trepidation um i i didn't know what the movie was going to be more of as what it is like at first, at the very beginning, I'm like, oh, this is so 90s. Like, I've seen this before. And then it becomes something, like, I didn't expect. And then, like, the Huey Lewis in the News thing is happening. And I'm happy to be hearing him talk about Huey Lewis in the News, for one. <laughs> but two, I'm, like, just enjoying it. Like, it's so bizarre. And it feels so Bretty Stinellis. Um, like, it, it, I started, it started striking me, like, how book-like the movie felt, in a way. Um and just the way it's navigating the character and his thoughts and all that. Um, so I, I felt like maybe in a way I was, I was playing. I, it's not that I was playing catch up with the movie the whole time. It was that I put myself in a position at the beginning to be playing catch up with the movie the whole time. Like I thought I was like, I don't know what this is. And then I feel like right around the Huey Lewis and the new saying, like I kind of settled into a rhythm with this movie and just understood. Um, and knowing beforehand too, that, all of it could have been fake. Like none of it is real. It's all in his head. Uh, that helped me stay in step with the movie a little bit. And so, and beyond that, I, I found the movie very funny. Like I, it, it was full of people I like, like Willem Dafoe and Chloe Sabini <laughs> and Samantha Mathis. Like I like all these people. Um, it was funny. It was entertaining. Like I, from there on out, I was, you know, I just was having fun with the movie and also, trying to understand it was it's one of those movies where like you don't have to try hard to understand it necessarily like you kind of get what it is um but it's also the kind of movie that the more i've thought about it and the nuances of what it was doing i'm like oh like okay like it like i said it's like an intelligent movie it, it has a lot of like cool little things it's saying um so i, I i'm at kind of at the point where i'm like god i, I kind of want to watch it again <laughs> uh, but I, I ordered the book from the library. So I'm going to like read the book and give it some space and head back into the movie and see if like, it's one of those movies, you know, like I did the same thing with fight club where like after five watches, I was finally like, Oh yeah, this is like a masterpiece. Yeah. I, I think you'll get there. Uh, it's, it's just, it lives in your head and it just gets funnier to me. I've seen the movie now. <laughs> over 10 times and it just gets funnier to me every single time i think the the single greatest scene in the movie is when he's breaking up with uh with reese witherspoon mm -hmm. uh evelyn when he's breaking up with evelyn and the conversation they have at the dinner and she's like what about our friends and he's like i've thought about it you can have them. <laughs> and then he just hits her with the, I've got to return some videotapes. It's amazing. It's the kind of dialogue that inspires me. Man, I forgot about that whole, I have to return videotapes thing. I will admit, I don't really know 
what the, I mean, is it just purely a joke that has to return his pornos? I think it's just one of those superficial excuses he's oh, using to get yeah, out of right. situation. He never has to return videotapes. It's just something that somebody would say in the 80s or 90s <laughs> because, you know, you don't want the late fees. Right. Yeah. So it's something that people kind of understood, like, yeah, you got to get those it was movies back. Deal. Yeah. So in the modern times, does it really check out quite as well? But, you know, you had the movie rental oh, yeah. experience and the late fee experience. Oh, yeah. Like, because, you know, back in the day, my parents would rent the movies and like sometimes I had to return them. And they wouldn't find out there was a late fee until we went to go get new movies, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then you're in trouble. And so it was a little universal, I think, in people just being like, oh, yeah, I guess you have to go return some movies. So him using it as just this get out of a conversation card uh-huh. when he never has movies to return is kind of hilarious to me. Yeah. It's great. Excuse me. Now I have to go return some movies. <laughs> I I think it's even his excuse. Um, like Willem Dafoe's questioning, I'm like, where were you on this night? He's like, I think I was returning some movies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, do you know the story behind uh, Willem Dafoe's uh, scenes? I I know nothing. So Mary Heron had him film the scene, uh, each scene that he's in multiple times, and in one take he was supposed to act like he knew Patrick Bateman was guilty. In another take, he was supposed to act like he was completely just like normal and neutral. Mm. And then in another, he was just supposed to be like he thought Patrick was innocent. <laughs> Did she use all the takes? She used all the takes. Of course. I, that t- makes total sense to me now thinking about his character. Yeah. So some some questions when he asks the question, it's the take from when he thinks he's guilty. And from another, it's when he's just kind of being casual. That, and it makes for like very funny very funny moments yeah yeah like he because he goes from like oh like oh yeah that makes sense that you wouldn't do that and then like the next scene he's like looking at him like look i know you did it (laughs) yeah and you can't tell if that's like just bateman's perspective on it and him like going around if it's part of the movie it's the same thing with the i i did get confirmation that the real estate agent was the same thing but the real estate agent when he shows up at paul allen's apartments and is looking at the closet where there should be like all of his stuff. The expression on her face could either be read that she's concerned because this weird man's there or she's concerned because she knew what was there. Yeah, right. And knows that he knows what was there. Yeah. It's it's great. Again, I, I think a strength of the movie is that like you you know nothing. Like you know as little as Patrick Bateman. Yeah. Though I <laughs> The thing that the moment that made me like truly fall in love with the movie the first time I watched it was when <laughs> the ATM, uh, when it tells him to feed feed me the yeah. cat, it was right after that when he's running through the the plaza and he goes through the door and shoots the guy and then goes back through the door and shoots the guy again. Mm. <sighs> it just cracked me but, up. It was yeah. so unnecessary, so over the top. That is definitely a moment where you were like, okay, this isn't real. Yeah, that part, that part, probably not real. <laughs> when he shoots the cop car and it just explodes. Because the only other movie I've seen where somebody just runs around at the turnstile over and over is Elf. And this movie is about <laughs> as ridiculous as that movie. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it funny to think of like movies with similar energy to Elf and it's American Psycho? Absolutely. I mean, the, the other great thing about American Psycho is like, yeah, it's funny. But it also does, uh, I mean, I'm a big horror movie fan, and I like when movies really go there with it. I mean, as we've talked about in the show, I'm a big fan of Terrifier 2. I think it's badass for a big movie like this, you know, with big name stars. It's supposed to be a commercial movie to have, like, a lot of blood, (laughs) to have, like, some really savage moments. I I saw that David Cronenberg was considered to direct this movie, and that wouldn't surprise me at all to see him do something like this. Oh, yeah. You know he would have had some fun with it. A lot of body horror. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we would have seen, like, the chainsaw, like, cutting through an arm or something. <laughs> like, right. You would have seen one body part cut off. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what did that make me... 
<laughs> that, what did it make your cat think of? Yeah, cat meowing at my dog because the dog was in the way of the t- like leaving the office. Um, uh, I hadn't read the book. I still haven't read the book. I haven't read any Brett Easton Ellis, but I I know how he writes. I mean, I've heard the way he talks, so I assume he kind of writes the way he talks almost. <laughs> um, but like again, I, all those like the Huey Lewis scene, like that feels so him, like uh the dry rambling run on sentence kind of thing you know yep yeah those parts are definitely in the book i looked at the book a bunch when i was writing the article on it and there was similarity i think it was like fight club in the sense that i think i liked what the movie was doing uh stylistically or with some of the scenes granted i didn't have the context of the whole book experience Mm -hmm. but when i was reading through you know, how it used uh, the Huey Lewis and the news description. I'm just like, oh, yeah, the movie incorporated it better or the movie kind of elevated this scene in a way that I liked more. Mm-hmm. Um, though This movie has gotten a lot of flack for uh, the intense treatments of women in the film and the, the dehumanization of women in the film, sure. which... I get why that would be like a criticism that's going on, but it's also like a Mary Heron film. So it feels like something that's happening because she's making a statement on feminism and the treatment of women rather than the movie just being dehumanizing of women. Totally. I mean, it's an important part of that discussion is that it's good to call out the negative and the positive aspects of it. So we can have a full nuanced picture of what this kind of movies doing like yeah you could totally make a case that the sort of violence inflicted upon women in this movie i mean not everyone's going to understand the point of that you know and that can have negative consequences people watching it i'm sure you could go down any trail to make that case but then again like mary heron did the movie like i said seems intelligent like it, it always feels like it's making a point and as you dig into like why Patrick Bateman is doing the things he's doing and and what instigated his behavior and what made him who he is, like it's discussion feels like it goes a lot deeper than a lot of those other trails people are going down. It's just a, it's one of those movies that like the only kind of movie that can inspire that kind of discussion is a movie like this that's able that's willing to go those places. So um, the fact that people are up in arms about it, in my mind, means like it's doing the right thing. One thousand <laughs> percent, or at least uh, trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I feel like that's very well said. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they did do a dinner. There's another like lore bit where before they started making the movie, uh, Mary Heron went to dinner with Brett Easton Ellis and brought Christian Bale. And the legend is that Christian Bale stayed in character the entire time. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that. And I think Christian Bale has said that he was like kind of in care, like kind of like doing something, but wasn't necessarily like trying to be Patrick Bateman the whole time. Mm-hmm. But I believe Brett Easton Ellis was saying that it was like very bizarre <laughs> to have this character you created essentially come face to face with him in a way and be confronted right. by it in reality. Yeah, that must be bizarre. Yeah, but uh, I mean, we know Christian Bale just goes for it in the roles that he takes on. Mm -hmm. And this is still my favorite performance by him. Yeah, I um, I'm a big fan of his, but I I might agree. I, I like he's a very talented actor, but I don't know if a lot of his performances inspire me in that way like i find the performance and the exploration of this character very inspiring in the sense that i mean i think great satire like we said it it goes beyond just mocking um it gets at the heart of something great satire empathizes it's um you care about your subject as much as you want to criticize your subject you want to get at the the deeper reason for why this is happening so everything in this movie just feels in sync in that way and including his performance Ah, well i'm i'm relieved that you uh i'm relieved that you enjoyed it did you have oh, yeah. a favorite scene or moment or a bit of dialogue um 
I do. I mean, the progression of him talking about the albums is pretty great. Um, <laughs> Hewless in the news, pretty. I mean, the whole scene with Jared Leto when they go out, you know, <laughs> and he's like, Jared Leto's just so drunk. It's yeah. Very entertaining. But yeah. the progression to that final scene where he kills is like it must be his friend or something that's there um i forget her name when he's talking about the whitney houston album and she's just like laughing i'm like you own a whitney houston album yeah 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 um that's that scene's really great because when he's talking about the music before that it has a very distance perspective i feel like where when he talks about whitney houston like he actually is expressing something like loving like the importance of loving yourself you know um there was just something very moving and uh grabbing about that and they're just like laughing at him and not listening to him it's it's a really important culmination to uh the music section like going from huey lewis to genesis to whitney houston um there's just something about like where we get to with that speech and like the universality of the message crosses all boundaries and instills one with hope it's uh pretty funny to see him reach that idea of dignity and self-preservation and like being able to (laughs) what is it we can always empathize with ourselves yeah in a movie where he's like struggling so deeply with identity It's, uh, I don't know, just like a great tension-filled moment in that way. Uh, Guinevere Turner, who's the woman that he kills, co-wrote the movie with Mary Heron. Ah, okay. Wow, she, uh, (laughs) I can see her energy, her natural energy in the script. Yeah, right? There's just something about, like, a bit of her flair or, like, confidence that's entering into probably some of the humor. Yeah, but another great, just to add to what you were saying about the the empathy and the recognizing, like, to empathize with yourself. He's saying all these things, and those are all insights to his character, like, probably the ways he wants to feel. But at the same time, all he's doing is regurgitating probably something somebody else wrote. Yeah. So, like, he's saying something that's true that he wants to feel, but he's not actually saying it. It's somebody else's words. Um which again just kind of adds to the layers of this movie and how confused and unable to self-actualize he actually is. Yeah. What's uh what's the moment when Evelyn's saying like, "Why don't you quit? You don't even like working there." And he turns to her very seriously and says, "Because I want to fit in." <laughs> <laughs> like it's true. That's why so many people do the things that they do because they want to fit in. They want to feel part of everything, so they they change who they are. They do something that they might not want to do to be part of the group. And some of that's healthy. Some of that's necessary because it gets us out of our comfort zone. But when you take it to the extreme that Bateman's taken it, it's dehumanizing yeah. and ridiculous. But it's still uh, it's still very like much a, a relevant point of the movie. Yep. It's good stuff. Yeah. All right. Good, 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 good. I guess that leads to ranking. Yeah, let's rank it. Okay, Chris, first tell us what category does this fit in? I think I have a good guess. Yeah, this is definitely in my my favorites. Nice. So this is a, a 10 out of 10 movie for me, you could say. I believe it. And for me... It is, like I said, I I really enjoyed it, and I think it could become one of those movies I love. Um, for now, I have it in the very good section. Uh, I have it ranked out of 543 movies. Ooh. I have it ranked at 154. Okay. I'm looking forward to that jumping all the way up to number eight. And, <laughs> and the, the movie sandwich is as follows. Yes, Ball, yes, please. Ball of Fire, a 1941 romantic comedy, Cary Grant, Bar- Barbara Stanwyck. It's a great movie. People, 
if you want to get into like old timey like slapstick romantic comedies, this is a great one. It's about like, or I'm sorry, I said Cary Grant. It's um Gary Cooper, and I got Cary and Gary mixed up. You could see how <laughs> that could happen. Um, he's like part of this team, basically him and like five other old men. They're just he's just partnered with all these old guys, and he's kind of an old guy himself, like in spirit. Um, they're hired to write like the world's greatest encyclopedia. So oh. this guy's like hired them and like they just sit around trying to write this encyclopedia. And this woman comes along who's dating like this just this criminal um who is looking to heist them. Uh I can't I can't even remember. I mean the the plot details are inane. It doesn't really matter. Basically she gets mixed up in their group and has to like put on a front and keep them close as this guy like kind of falls for her and then, then she slowly falls for him. And it's just funny. Cause like, she's this electric, like vivacious lady and he's like this totally stale <laughs> encyclopedia dude. Um, it's very funny and well done. Nice. Anyway, then demons, 1985 horror movie about demons that attack and kill. Uh, then American psycho, then close to Vermeer, a documentary that came out last year. <coughs> <clears throat> about Vermeer uh, that I encourage everyone to watch. It's all about art and how we see art. And then Buchanan Rides Alone, a Western. Yeah. <laughs> you and your Westerns. Love it. You love them. <laughs> Buchanan Rides Alone is one of those like classic Westerns where sometimes Westerns are just like dudes roaming the Western, empty Western landscape. Um, and then there are other ones where, like, the cowboy rides into the town. He's just there to get a beer or something. And, like, a situation arises. And he gets pulled in. And he has to, like, police and, like, help out the town. And then at the end of the movie, he leaves after he's helped everyone. Beautiful. It's yeah, lovely. It's good stuff. We all want that force in our lives who <laughs> comes in, helps us, and then gets the fuck out. It's a life you can lead. Like, you could just go from city to city. Yeah. Maybe I'll become that person. That'd be cool. Marie, I'm going to be gone for a little while. <laughs> I have to go help people I don't know. You stay strong, little lady. <laughs> See, those are the kind of sentences you could start saying, too, as a cowboy. <laughs> I'll be back when I'm back. <laughs> you say that as you leave every town. <laughs> I'll be back when I'm back. That's uh, I feel like I have a, a flair for Western dialogue. I, I, Yeah, please do it. All right. One Western coming up. Okay, Chris. Right. We're at the controversial ending of our show. First Everyone's though, talking about it, tweeting about it, writing about it on in the newspapers. Things get crazy here at the end. Yeah, but you have to tell us what movie we're doing next. Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. That's even more controversial. I thought I was about to skip that. I know. What are you thinking? What are you doing? What are some popular movies on our site that I could suggest? Uh, popular ones that we haven't written or like done podcasts on right now. There's Zone yeah. of Interest. Oh, okay. uh, I would have to watch that. Can I would have to that? watch that? I, it might be playing in a theater nearby you. There's Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, man. I should have done that for Christmas. What were you thinking? Uh, Memento is currently doing pretty well. Yeah, I don't um, want to watch Memento again. <laughs> American Fiction, Society of the Snow, Manchester by the Sea, The Whale. You just name me movies I don't want to watch. <laughs> uh, X, I mean, Maxine comes out, so we could do a uh, flow of X, Pearl, and uh, Maxine. Uh, I wouldn't be against that because I've actually still haven't seen Pearl. You haven't seen Pearl. Oh, I don't know no. why. I, I as much as I love Ty West, like there was something, the allure of a new Ty West movie felt. It didn't feel as precious because, like, all of a sudden, like, oh wait, there are just like three all of a sudden, and I have to watch like <laughs> two of them in one year. Like, I just want like one every couple years. <laughs> you who watch like a movie a day or 300 movies in a year <laughs> yeah like, I, well I, I like to space it out though I like to watch all kinds of different things 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I'd be curious. Like, I watched Pearl, then I watched X. Uh-huh. You've watched X, and now you're watching Pearl. Um, maybe we do. Do you want to do like a an X plus Pearl episode? That's a great idea. Okay, let's do that, and then okay. we can cover the new movie when it comes out. Yeah, so we don't have to do, you know, an X episode, a Pearl episode. We can just do an X and Pearl episode. Sounds great. I I might mostly be talking about X though. I will mostly be complaining about Pearl. <laughs> oh, good. Then we'll talk about both the movies. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Now on to the controversial part. Okay. Yeah, of course. Chris calls me a liar every single episode, and I have to sit here and defend myself, but the listeners are on my side. They hear at the end that we're both saying, <laughs> what do we say at the same time? I don't even remember. See ya. See ya. We say yeah. see ya. So- we're going to say lights, camera, see ya. We're going to say see ya at the same time. It's going to go beautifully. Are you ready? Yeah. Just a reminder to everybody that hears it. Synced up at the end. Travis is in control of the editing. Yeah. I mean, of course. It's so I'm going to sound like I'm correct no matter what happens <laughs> because nobody knows what actually happened at the end. No, not even me. No. And you know what? Maybe not even me. It's a Patrick Bateman scenario. <sighs> All right. All right. Here we go. Yep. Lights, camera, see ya. I have to return some videotapes. Oh, twist, <laughs> twist. <laughs>